what we needed was money. That was the point where uh, we were raising a $40 million Series C investment round. And that's when we faced some like severe tailwinds where we had a lead private equity investor that pulled out not only the last minute, like the last second of the last minute. I got on a plane from Cape Town to London where I thought I was going to go sign documents and have a celebratory dinner and found out that their new management team at the investment fund had decided they're not going to go forward. Hi, everyone. My name is Rowena Luke, and you're listening to Aid Evolved. This is a podcast about the people trying to find a better way to do good. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Mike Quinn. Mike is the co-founder and former CEO of Zona, one of Africa's earliest fintech companies. He raised over $30 million in investment back when this was basically unheard of in the African context. Today, he's the founder of Boost. But I'll warn you now, our conversation today is going to focus on the rise and the crash of Zona. Mike writes about all of this in surprising detail in his book recently published called Failing to Win. The story of Zona is, to me, a classic David and Goliath story. It was founded by a bunch of guys who just wanted to make it easier to transfer money in Zambia. And they had the courage and the gall to take on the billion-dollar phone companies like Vodacom and Airtel. And he almost won. Almost. We begin with the story of Mike Quinn. Mike grew up in the great grassy plains of Western Canada. In university, he studied mechanical engineering, which is where he crossed paths with an organization called Engineers Without Borders. You can imagine Doctors Without Borders, but for engineers. Through this organization, Mike had his first placement overseas. A year in Ghana, followed by a year in Zambia, working on rural agricultural projects. After that, he dived into graduate studies at the London School of Economics and then at Oxford, which is where he made the fateful connection with the impact investor community. These were people with money from New York, Washington, and London, looking for social enterprises that could do some good while also balancing their books. But the challenge they kept on raising to Mike over and over again was, we just don't know what are the good organizations in Africa to invest in. So Mike put up his hand and said, I can solve that problem. I developed a business card that had a picture of a baobab tree and a logo for African Enterprise Partners. And I said, like, I'm, you know, Mike, the founder of this organization, but there was nothing that existed other than the card. And uh, went door to door for a while, got a lot of rejections, but then ended up getting um, a very lucky break with uh, an impact investor in Washington called the Grassroots Business Fund. And they bought me a plane ticket to Zambia. Um, this was early 2009 and said, go find us, uh, go find us deals. And that was when I, I had probably the stroke of lightning because I arrived, I'll never forget it, on like a, a Sunday in Zambia, um, in Lusaka, in the capital city. And I sent an email to uh, an American guy um, that I had uh, worked with when I was a volunteer there a couple of years earlier, um, saying, I'm, I've got this investment fund behind me and I, you know, do you know any entrepreneurs? Because I didn't. <laughs> and he connected me to, uh, to these two brothers, Brad and Brett McGrath, and said, go meet these guys. And I had a meeting with them on Monday morning at 10 o'clock. Um, so it was like the, one email, one meeting. Um, I meet these two guys and then they start telling me about like their vision of, of a cashless Africa and how they have this technology that they took from a previous business in the airtime industry. And there was this mobile money model emerging in Kenya. And I had the investor behind me. And then 
Uh, we did a, a $200,000 investment, I believe July 1st, 2009, which we didn't know at the time, but uh, could very well be like the first like seed investment in African fintech because there, there was really nothing else happening at the time. And I think that's one of the key things about your story that's uh, that's easy to omit in the current era is that in 2009, no one was investing in fintech in Africa. You know, it was a it was a wasteland, <laughs> which is why you were there to find those those opportunities. It must have been quite a meeting that you had with Brad. Yeah, I ended up working with them for the next 10 years and uh, became kind of like the third brother. It's <laughs> 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 like the third wheel, but then it did, like, did become the third brother and we're, we're still very close. Um, <laughs> Mike McGrath. But, yeah. Because, um, uh, you know, and they had never, they had never even conceived of foreign investment. Like the, the, I remember telling them about like, Hey, there's an investment fund in Washington, DC that wants to invest in Zambia. And they hired me to go find entrepreneurs to invest in. And, and then my proposition to them was, I said, like, I'll, I'll facilitate this deal and then I'll stick around and, and work with you guys and help build the business. And, and then we did a, we did a deal where I would get some sweat equity in the business um, to have, have some shares um, and then to become a, a true co-founder and partner, um, several months later, I, I went all in and convinced my parents back in Canada to mortgage their retirement house and and lend me $100,000 to invest in the company. Bless your parents. They seem like good people. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had never made a risky investment in their entire life. Um, and uh, they, they, weren't, they weren't rich, so it wasn't like they had expendable cash. It was just my, my mom said she... She believed in me and I made a very strong sales pitch of how we were going to uh, have all this impact and change the world. <laughs> and and right. I said at the time, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not asking you to give me a down payment on a house. I'm like, it, um, it's it's something that's going to be much more impactful. So nicely done. Nicely done, Mike. And to your family, obviously. Did you know anything about fintech before you met Brad and decided that you were going to you know, invest, invest this amount of time in your life? Like when you signed up, what, what made you take the leap? I, I didn't even know anything about technology and I'd never heard of M-Pesa. <laughs> yeah, was, that's uh, a crazy thing. Yeah. No, and, and uh, but I, I, I knew, I kind of knew internally I was an entrepreneur and I'd had feedback from others and like all the projects that I, I had worked in, like um, in Ghana and Zambia before, like I had the ability to hustle and to turn um, something, nothing into something. And I, I, when I was at Oxford, I learned this, uh, this classical definition of entrepreneurship from a, from a Harvard professor named Howard Stevenson, um, that is entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity uh, without regard to resources controlled. And that was something that always stuck oh into me. And so it's like the relentless pursuit of opportunity. So, you, you know, you don't have a budget, you don't have a salary, you don't even have an investor, but you see the opportunity and then you like, you kind of crystallize into a vision and you hustle to like make something happen. So I kind of backed myself and knew that, you know, I, I knew I could be a, a connector and a facilitator. And I'm like, there were people like um, Brad and Brett that were building businesses and were amazing entrepreneurs and had vision. And then there were people like the the grassroots business fund and investors that just like were on the other side of the world that weren't on the ground or didn't know how to find these entrepreneurs. And so that was really what the problem I was seeking to solve initially, where, you know, I've said I, I'm like the go between because I've, I've got this experience in Africa and I can relate. And I, I've got this network now um, from my MBA and just from like the privilege of, of where I come from and with Engineers Without Borders as well um, to to find the money. And can I facilitate the two? Um, and then one other kind of side story I should share 
related to this as well that, that I think is um, is relevant is so the chairman of Engineers Without Borders, who was the very first angel investor there, was a gentleman named Patrick Bichette, um, who when I, I met him, I was a volunteer and he was working at, uh, at a telco in Canada. Um, and then he got the job as the Google CFO. Um, oh, nice. And, That's and, a good yeah, connection today, to have. Yeah, today, today, he's actually the Twitter chair. Really? And, uh, and so, how, how do you guys um, keep in touch, right? Yeah, he's an he's an investor in Boost, but I, I just actually uh, I started harassing him because <laughs> um, nicely, he, he, nicely he, done, I, yeah. I'm like the guy who knows the Google Google CFO, so I, I just started sending him <laughs> emails and pitch decks, and it it led to uh, like a phone call, and he he got interested, and then he actually came in in uh, uh, kind of early 2010 as our angel investor um, at Zona. Um, so we were like a Zambian fintech startup with the Google CFO as an angel investor. And, and he he became like uh, an amazing force for us and helping us develop the business model and just mentoring me over the next 10 years. And he got more and more involved as well. But th- that, that was kind of, you know, to your question of like, I didn't know technology, but I, I knew I could kind of like bring these soft connections and uh, and help build the business. And yeah, over time we we built it to something that ended up serving a quarter of the adult population in Zambia, and and uh, at our peak we were trans yeah moving eighty million U.S. dollars a month in like twenty thirty dollar transactions. So it was a pretty big uh, big operation. That's wild, particularly when you think of a country like Zambia. Like there is not like relatively not that much cash net, so to have that much of it flowing through Zona says a lot about the amount of the market that you were capturing. I also really like the story that you pulled out there about really working your network and speaking up for this this vision or, you, or this cause that you believe in. Uh, when I speak to other African entrepreneurs or, you know, entrepreneurs in Africa, I think there's there isn't as much of this, like, I think one thing that is missing, particularly the ones that don't get the funding, is that ability to really work that network. Uh, and that's something that that you've done a lot of in order to get the interest in Zuna and the international attention that it that it deserved. Mike, can I read can I read a, a quote from your book that I, I really loved about just about like the early days of, of you working with Zona, uh, which for me, I think it was one of the moments that like sort of captured that that initial hustle <laughs> of what it was like to get that organization off the ground. Um, it's about when you when you recruited the CFO, Keith, uh, you brought him into the organization. This is the quote. In Keith's first month in October 2010, he took over the financial accounts from Brett and set up a new cash flow forecast. He called me from Cape Town to explain that things were way worse than we thought. We are eight weeks from being broke, he said. Brett, when he heard this news, clapped his hands and let a loud belly laugh. Today is going to be a great day, he said. <laughs> Keith's face contorted with a confusion. Why was his partner laughing? Brett, your co-founder, carried on. We are always running out of cash, but this time we have revenue and we have visibility. Mike, that sounds like a stressful couple of first years. <laughs> what was it like living from paycheck, paycheck to paycheck like that? Oh, I'm doing it all over again now. <laughs> Familiar territory, huh? <laughs> But it's it's actually something that every entrepreneur relates to, and so it, um, it's probably not actually shared enough that uh, all these people that are are creating um, new businesses and startups are making huge personal sacrifices and doing it under huge stress. And and you know, like you you mentioned before, of like like most people don't have the networks um, to actually get the funding, um, even though like the funding would like dramatically change their business and their um, their prospects of su- for success. It's always stressful. I think you have to kind of, you, you, like, I think I'm sure I'm addicted to it. Um, <laughs> you you kind of have to love it. 
and and like thrive under under those conditions because if if you want um, certainty or stability, uh, it's just like the early phases of a startup are, are probably not for you. When you get to like you're running out of cash, and then you're like, well, you know, we can't pay ourselves salaries, so you know, this month. But you always try to like do do right by your the people that are working for you, and and see who can sometimes defer things or what what expenses you can push out and what suppliers can like you know not pay. Um, you cannot pay, but like you're always trying to build relationships. I think that's like really important where uh, everybody, um, if, if people believe in your vision and what you're doing, like it's amazing the sacrifices they will also make on your behalf as an entrepreneur. Like how you and, got uh, Keith to liquidate his retirement plan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? And it's just like, it, it's like a dumb business investment at the time, but it's because, you know, we all believe in like, this could become something that um, is very, very impactful and, and also could ultimately be valuable for a lot of people. And, and that's why, you know, that's why you do it. But it's it's not easy. And I, I look back to, to, you know, to the quote you read and I'm laughing and I'm, I'm like, I remember this, like, so, so <laughs> remember being in the car, <laughs> I remember being in the car and I'm like, and it was a great day. Cause we made all these decisions that we were like delaying. Cause we, you know, if we were focused, we're like, how do we generate revenue? How do we change our pricing? How do we push out expenses? What costs are we carrying that we don't need to? Before we dive deeper into Mike's story, let me just pause for a minute and explain what Zona does in a nutshell. Zona made it possible to send cash digitally. Imagine you're in Zambia in the year 2009 and you want to send money to friends or family to help them pay medical bills or go to school. It's tough. Even just getting the cash is a struggle because many of the ATM machines don't work or they run out of cash or there's no electricity. And we're not even talking about the majority of villages which don't have ATMs. And then once you have the money, how do you get it to another town or another country? A lot of people would just give it to a taxi driver or drive themselves. Can you imagine giving a wad of cash to a taxi driver, particularly when you and the driver are both just trying to make ends meet? Now there was a post office service that you could use. And at the end of every month, hundreds of people would go stand in these very long queues and send money for an extraordinary fee just to get to another city in Zambia. Zona changed all of that. Basically, it allowed somebody to go to a Zona agent to send money quickly, reliably, and cheaply, both within Zambia and to other countries. In this way, it's similar to M-Pesa in Kenya. Now there's two key parts that you need in order to make a product like Zona work. First, you need a world-class technology stack that can work on a cheap mobile phone with 100% reliability. And you need the agent network. You need an army of people spread out across Zambia, interfacing with the public, ensuring that they can access and use the service. A company like Zona could only exist with this balance of mobile technology and the deep roots in Zambia required to build this agent network. In many ways, as Mike writes in his book, creating and serving that network of agents was at the core of what Zona was built to do. The technology was super important, but really what made it work was having like this agent network, this human powered like ATM network. And uh, what we figured out there was the the best agents um, we had to create from scratch. And what we would do is we would take young women and men um, straight out of high school that had like a high school diploma, but like unemployment rates were sky high. So they there weren't like any job prospects. And especially for women where 
the the kind of career prospects where you go be like a, a domestic worker, a cleaner, a secretary, or you you know you get married to somebody who can support you, um, and you start having children, like the the um, uh, you know children at a very young age, um, and so now we provided this micro franchise like business in a box opportunity where you could get a kiosk, um, a phone, a digital loan, and then uh, a t-shirt, and you could sit in this kiosk. Um, and do cash in, cash out transactions for people sending and receiving money. And every transaction you do as an agent, um, you would get a commission on that. And initially, it, it was really hard to kind of get up and running and like getting the first agents going and just everybody was taking big leaps of faith. And, and could, like, we didn't have a brand, nobody knew who we were. But over time, what happened was um, word of mouth started spreading. And then some of these young agents um, got so busy and were making so much money from commissions that they started hiring their relatives and then opening up new locations. We, we got to the point where um, if I just share like one example of um, like we had this uh, young woman named Masozi, who I think started with us when she was 22. Um, and by the time she was 27, she was turning over a million dollars U.S. a month in cash and employing, employing over 20 people. And all the people she was employing were like, uh, I think like 90% of them were women and uh, they all wanted to like be agents like her. And so it, it created this whole ecosystem of, of agents where, where we had a tremendous amount of impact. That's amazing. I need to get her on the show next. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Now it's great to hear that. And uh, again, like what I think is amazing about that story is that there are other examples of technology products out there that you could build anywhere in the world and maybe like import, you know, into different markets and such. But like this particular offering, uh, you could only have built with your agent network. And because you had the agent network, you could work really closely with them. There's there's one part in the book where uh, your your team comes to you. You come, you have the revelation that like creating jobs for these entrepreneurs is is your mission. It's like part of it's, it's what you're trying to do uh, with Zona. And I thought that was that was inspiring just to hear like you're serving directly those those entrepreneurs that you're that you're creating and you're serving in those communities. I'd love to talk a bit about how this the business that you had played out in in the broader market like when you know you mentioned Empesa as another example and Empesa I believe is run by the telco operator there and when we hear about mobile money it's almost automatic you're like oh yeah Airtel money like different kinds of money that is provided by telcos uh which you know, they come to market with a very different thing, um, but they, they do have a huge advantage. They're huge. They have massive pockets. How did, forgive me if this is a bit cruel, but like, how did you ever hope that Zona could succeed against the telcos? <laughs> it's such a good question. And, and in the end, we didn't, it is, uh, is another spoiler alert, but um, for a long time we did. And when we started, we were paranoid um, and we didn't believe we could succeed, but we were first to market. And what we always envisioned uh, Zona would become was we would um, we would build out this agent network and this money transfer service, and then then the telcos in the market uh, we knew they were going to copy what was happening in Kenya and roll it out in in Zambia and everywhere else, which is exactly what they've done. Uh, we knew they had big brands, deep pockets, big consumer bases, so we didn't think we could compete with them, but we. We figured that they would want to use the agent network we were building so that their customers could come do like cash in, cash out at our agents. And, and Zona could become like this interoperable agent network, like serving the entire market of mobile money. That was like our, our first plan. So the human capital, the human collateral was a key part of your competitive advantage. Yeah, we put that strategy to, to test when it was a few years later, like they were, they were slow to roll out. But when they did, they came with a, a lot of noise. And uh, MTN, um, big South African-owned telco, was was first. 
Uh, and then Airtel um, bought a, a, a company called Zane that was in the market and, and also rolled out. What MTN first did was everywhere we had a green zone, a kiosk, they put a yellow MTN kiosk right next to every one of ours in the country like overnight. And all of their kiosks were like one meter taller, right? It was like, a, yeah, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a show of strength. And some of them were so close to our, our kiosks that like our agents couldn't even open the door. That's ridiculous. I mean, it's, I guess it's business, but like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, so that that well that that woke us up, and um, we we felt like we had a, a sustainable advantage at the time because we had a network effect going, and our service was so good. Did, but does does MTN and and Airtel don't they have their own? You know those guys that sell scratch cards. Is that yeah their equivalent of an agent network? Well, so, so they they tried that and it wasn't working. But then they copied us. They said, "Oh, Zona's got kiosks, so it must be the kiosk. That must be why they are getting customers." So then they just rolled out all of these like yellow kiosks. Um, so just a direct copycat move, but it scared us. But internally we were saying, we're like, you know what, if our entire business is only about the kiosk, then we actually don't have a business. We deserve to lose because it's really about the service. It's like getting the, the right person inside that kiosk who provides a good service to the consumer. They always have the cash to pay out a money transfer. Like, so whereas with the mobile money guys, consumers could go to like one of their agents and they'd be like, can I send money or, or deposit cash? And the agent would say, I don't have I don't have enough float, like electronic currency to receive that money. So so they would they would have to reject the transaction. So we, we were competing on service, but we were scared enough uh, that we went and tried to do a partnership with MTN's competitor, Airtel. And we actually um, uh, integrated with them. We, we did a commercial deal. Uh, we did a huge national launch. We got a, a small side note, but we, we got an aviation license to fly a, a, a blimp, a Zona blimp, um, <laughs> which uh, oh, one, one of our, mar- our marketing managers um, managed to get permission from somebody um, to put it above the Airtel uh, head office. Um, and then, That's then awesome. Our, I want a picture of it. <laughs> our, our call center got lit up with calls from people asking if we bought Airtel. And, and uh, we, heard, <laughs> we heard that their senior management was not impressed at all. Um, they were like, who, who approved this? <laughs> well done. They bought the kiosks. You got a blimp. Yeah. You know? All's fair. But, more. <laughs> yeah, long, long story short, like we, we launched this partnership with them, uh, branded all our kiosks, um, and then they still rolled out their own kiosk network right next to ours, like overnight. So like in the, in the background, they were they were partnering with us in the foreground. In the background, they were planning their own attack. And uh, and then suddenly um, Zona was, was sandwiched between like a, a yellow MTN kiosk and a red Airtel kiosk. And what happened was that actually catalyzed our growth because it created all this noise in the market and all these people would go and they would try Airtel or try MTN and their service sucked. And then they would try Zona and it worked. And then um, we, we became like the business that um, consumers trusted because every time you go to a Zona kiosk, you could send or receive money. The agent was friendly to you. Our brand was local. We weren't a foreign company. We were the underdog. And, uh, and we, you can see it in our, in our numbers where it's like, we, we went from like slow linear growth to like starting to like upwards exponential growth after that point. Wow. That's, that's wild. And it's really, it's really inspiring to hear. Like, I think look at hearing about how you were able to win the aspects of the market because of your service to the customers, because you were able to provide float. I think there's a message in there about the value of the market that exists. Like you were able to prioritize these mobile money services and the quality of the service and the quality of your application in a way that the telcos weren't. And, you know, again, 
full disclosure, like, you know, teaser, I guess, like in, in the book, there's, there's other reasons, at least in my read about why things went south later, but like you had the chance, there was a clear opportunity there for you to win despite the telcos. Well, I'll, I'll kind of, sh- I think fast forward a little bit um, to what, what happened at, at, at the end with this, because um, I completely agree with you and I'm, I'm still convinced we could have won. Um, and it, it's, uh, I have very few regrets, but um one of them was not having the opportunity to really like evolve and like take the next step. Um, and we made a lot of internal mistakes like with hiring and um, uh, just like scaling challenges and going into other markets prematurely and a lot of things that I, I do write about in the book. But at the end, like towards like 2017, we had uh, developed a, a new uh, platform called Zona Plus, um, which was like a full stack digital bank for micro savings, uh, micro credit, money transfers, bill payments. It was on, uh, there was an Android app and it was leveraging our brand and our agent network and our 2 million consumers. And um, this was, it was an incredible product. We had like a whole fresh brand behind this and we actually rolled it out and we, we acquired like 50,000 customers, like the first three months. Um, it was like very successful. And um, our head of product uh, at the time was was a woman named Kristen Weber, who then went on after she left Zona to become the head of uh, product at N26 Digital Bank in in, in Berlin, in Germany. Um, so we we had an incredible team, and I, I, I'm still convinced like this was the best product in the market, and and it would have won. But what we needed was money, right? And and that was the point where uh, we were raising a 40 million dollar Series C investment round. Um, and we needed to like properly capitalize this, this, um, it wasn't really a pivot. It was like a transformation from a, a money transfer legacy business that had reached the top of the S curve and it built us this, like all these assets, but we, we wanted to evolve into like this digital bank, um, and then roll it out also in Malawi and Mozambique. And, uh, that's when we faced some like severe tailwinds where we had a lead private equity investor that pulled out not only the last minute, like the last second of the last minute, I got on a plane from Cape Town to London where I thought I was going to go sign documents and have a celebratory dinner and found out that their uh, their new management team at the investment fund had decided they're not going to go forward um, with the investment. And this was after like four months of due diligence. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. And then, then that kind of led to like uh, the last uh, nine plus months that um, of my time at Zona where what, when we should have been rolling out Zona Plus and going out, really going for it, what we were doing was just like cutting costs and laying off staff as fast as we could. And because uh, we, were, we were running out of money because um, we didn't have the investment. And, you know, anybody who's run a business knows that actually to downsize costs money, but you, you have to do it. Um, but it's like you have to pay severances and, and it like destroys the culture and you have to let people go that like have been with you for a long time and that you you kind of bought into your vision and we're ready to like really um, go to this next level. Like our, our whole staff had like we had 200 plus people and they were all building up for over a year to this investment closing for the launch of Zona Plus to like take on the telcos. And then then it didn't. And, and it just like um, it, it just reversed everything so quickly. And, and I learned from like a lot from that. Um, like one is like if you have like the best business with the best culture and product and brand, like if you don't have the money to compete, you can't. If we had our 40 million dollar round close, even though we were getting aggressively com- attacked at that time by the telcos, like I, I think we we would have pulled it off because our, our product was great. Our brand was still strong, but um, it was just that lack of being able to get the funding we needed to compete. And it was hard. We were in a, we were in a small market and the timing wasn't right. Right. So I, I believe you. I think there's when you look at the story of successful or, or unsuccessful startups, there's there's always that aspect of like 
you know, you like on the books, you have the sale, but maybe, maybe the numbers don't cut, the cash doesn't come in on time. You know, like you're cutting it so close and some sometimes it's, it's a little bit too close. Uh, and, and my understanding is what happened with the zone. It was just like, it was like a little bit too close, but it could easily have gone the other way. I don't, I don't know if you've read the, the shoe dog, the story of Nike, Yeah, but it. there's a similar moment where the guy's like, like hiding from his debtors because he literally doesn't have the cash to pay someone. And like the difference of a day was all that it took for Nike to be the company that it is. <laughs> so, so that, that book very much uh, was an inspiration for me while I was writing. Um, and I'd already, I already had the title in my head. Um, but it was like, you know, I, I started off where I like, you know, I failed to win at Zona, like Zona failed to win. We didn't achieve the vision that we we set out to. But, um, but then it was like this, uh, you know, this, the second meaning around like everything we achieved, we had failed so much until we had a breakthrough. And so it was like really this theme of like failing in order to win. And I, re- then I started realizing, I'm like, you know, we were winning the whole time. Um, it just like, not, I felt like it cause we were failing and failing and failing. It felt like we were always failing, but then you look back and you're like, no, we, we like all these failures kind of led up to this, uh, to these like milestones and successes and breakthroughs. And then, then I read Phil Knight's shoe dog, um, kind of while I was, I was processing this and, uh, it, uh everybody knows Nike. Um, how many people know about blue ribbon and like, you know, 80% of that book is about blue ribbon, which was like his company, you know, that, that eventually turned into Nike that almost you know, crashed and burned and died over and over and over and over again. And, um, and that was like a big inspiration for me. Cause I was like trying to think about like, what am I going to do next? What company, like I knew I wanted to do this again and I wanted to start a new company. And then, you know, I was like, you know, Zona is my blue ribbon and boost my new company, like could be my Nike. And can I, can I use the fit, like my failures at Zona and really harness and embrace them and, and learn the lessons to launch something that could go on to become, you know, to fulfill like, like my true potential and the the vision that we, you know, we started off with at Zona. Tell me a little bit more about Boost. Tell me about how you were able to pick up after everything that happened at Zona and the heartache and the roller coaster there to end up at Boost. Yeah. So um, the vision for Boost is uh, to power the growth for Africa's uh, 100 million plus informal retail entrepreneurs um, that are still, still largely offline, underserved, employs 76% of people in urban areas. Um, like this is the economic backbone of the continent. And these are, are providers of essential services. So um, groceries, small restaurants, small independent pharmacies, um, like fruit and vegetable sellers. And this is where like how the economy functions. And on the flip side, it's like obviously an enormous market opportunity, um, similar to like in the early 2000s, where you have like hundreds of millions of businesses in the you know, in the um, rich parts of the world that are offline, but now there's the internet and there's like Google and, you know, and Amazon and Shopify, which started then too. But all of these small businesses have to make like the, the leap to go from offline to online. And now you have e-commerce and, and uh, you know, the digital economy that's emerging. So we're at this really interesting inflection point in Africa. And I, I, I believe Boost is, is going to play a pivotal role to, uh, to bridging that gap. And um, we have a uh, starting off with like a very simple um, value proposition of, of helping informal retailers um, in these different segments that I mentioned um, order stock with a, a very simple um, ex- uh, stock ordering experience. It's not we don't even have an app. So it's like a, a no app um, ordering experience that they you can use their phone. They can see a catalog um, of all the products um, and the pricing that they would get. And they, they order what they need that they can sell. And then it shows up at their door. 
But normally these entrepreneurs would have to go to like big open air markets or to dozens of wholesalers just to discover prices. And they would physically need to move goods to the goods back to themselves because nobody's doing last mile delivery or it's a very underserved part of the market. Um, and now that's that's piloting in Egypt that is is growing at like plus 35 percent month on month and uh, and just I'm really convinced that it's actually going to work. <laughs> um, but it's, it's like it's a very early phases. Um, and um, it wasn't easy. Like I, I had a lot of the challenges. Like I actually expected um, the fundraising. I thought I thought that would be a lot easier because I thought with my my track record at Zona and what I built, you know, I'd heard the stories of Silicon Valley of like if you're a failed entrepreneur and you do it again, everybody wants to throw money at you. Um, my experience was very much the opposite, where um, you know, it, like I, I'm kind of back into the pool of like you know first time entrepreneurs. Um, the, the ecosystems evolved um, immensely. And, uh, and so there's a lot more startups now. And, and so needing to get to the same level of traction as everybody else, um, raising money remotely, hustling. Um, so our, our first uh, million and a half dollars we pulled in, um, like my smallest check was $2,000 from a woman in Argentina. We have investors in every single continent. Um, <laughs> every dollar counts. Back to, yeah, to that point where you, you mentioned the beginning of, of our conversation around like just working the network and uh, um, I, I started trying to like find a fund that would, you know, just anchor us and say, here's the money. So you don't have to focus on fundraising, go build this vision. But um, I, I realized like that, um, at least in Africa, that that doesn't yet exist. So I, I, I do this. Um, I still spend most of my time fundraising and, and um, uh, just view it now very much in service to my co-founders that are building these businesses in Africa. So that we have four companies now that don't have to spend any of their time fundraising because I, I I can fulfill that need and um and as much as it like it pains me at times and I I dislike it um I, I still kind of realize I'm like you know we're getting huge leverage from doing it this way so I'm I'm quite excited. Yeah. I mean it's it's a huge need and I think it is an unfortunate like a an unfortunate and inequitable truth that it's so much harder to access funding even if you have the quality and the team and the ideas if you're working in Africa. Um, also for the same structural issues you highlight in your book, how everyone wants you to work in multiple markets, uh, but then it's actually harder to launch in multiple markets at the same time and all the tensions related to that. Well, I, I would also just say one other thing, Rowena, is like, so I'm a, I'm a white male Canadian with an Oxford MBA um, and, a, and like a, a 10 plus year track record of building like this business zona. And it is incredibly hard for me. And like, I can't even imagine if you are like a, you know, a Ugandan woman, like female entrepreneur, like with a startup um, or, you know, like th how many thousands of entrepreneurs they are that just like don't even have the network or the access or know how to get the money and like the, the barriers that, that they must face and how frustrating that might must be. And the, the one thing um, I would say about like the funding ecosystem in Africa is it's like it's exciting because money is like plowing in now. Um, but it's like it's only the the tip of the iceberg of like what is needed at all stages. And it's it's uh, if you compare like the total Africa, like funding for the startup ecosystem, um, it is like, you know, the um, I, I may get this statistic wrong, but I, I, I saw it on, on Twitter, like a reliable source of all information. Right. But it's like it's like it's like equivalent to like the, the funding that's gone into like the Pittsburgh startup community <laughs> in, in the U.S. Right. So it's, it's still a drop it's in the true. ocean of, yeah, still a drop in the ocean of, of what's needed to like really support the, the ecosystem development. And and, and one other thing I, I would I would also share, too, is like that. I think we all collectively as entrepreneurs and like investors and, and people supporting the startup community need to get over the, 
um, over the mindset of like, there needs to be a company that wins for all of Africa, everywhere, always like forever. Right. So I, like, I often get asked like, um, uh, you know, like, how are you going to compete with, uh, this company in Kenya? I'm like, well, they're in Kenya. I'm not, uh, boost isn't right. And like, yeah, like, um, uh, Ghana, like Accra to, um, Cape town is the same distance as like London to like Moscow. And you, you like no, no investors in the UK would say like, Hey, there's another company in Germany. Like, how are you going to compete with that company in the UK market? And I, I feel there's too much of that in Africa now, like, and there's a huge underappreciation of like the, the startup ecosystem that needs to emerge and the role of, of competition and driving forward innovation and providing like goods and services to like all of these underserved communities and, and what value that can unleash. Like as Africa grows to like 2 billion people, what, what is going to be needed to like actually really serve all of these people and create jobs? We are like 1% of the way there right now. Thank you, Mike. Uh, in the last couple of minutes that we have, we're going to switch over to a short set of rapid fire questions. First question for you, Mike, um, is if you could take a step back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? And I know your book is peppered with this. So if there's just like one or two key points to pull out there. One of my core principles uh, now that I wish I knew then was to build, build a business or a team with the fewest right people. Fewest is important because, um, A, like, uh, you know, uh, more people equals more costs and more overhead, and that requires more money, and money's hard to get. Uh, but also, um, the smaller the team, the faster you can move, the easier it is to stay aligned, the more agile you can be. So I, I think just staying super small is important and, like, not hiring ahead of the curve or, or just, like, there were points at Zona where we were, like, high-fiving each other when we didn't know the names of all our staff because we're like, hey, we're growing, but... That should have been a big, uh, big red flag. Um, and then the right people, um, because it's extremely hard to find people that fit the uh, like the culture of the organization, are aligned with like the, the values and vision and purpose, um, have the uh, skills and abilities and experiences to do the role and like are, are good people to work with. There's so many variables that um, that are go against that, that, that make like misfits easy. And so I think really taking your time to, to make sure that you're working with people that um, you you know want to work with for the next 10 years and you can grow together. And I'm very deliberate about that now, how I select co-founders and um, investors and partners. I'm just thinking of like, you know, the, the, the boxes of uh, and like the, the roles that people will play and, and, and assessing the people fit. Nice. So that, that's probably the biggest advice. And I would give that to like all entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Mike. Next question is, if you have any requests for donors or policymakers looking to foster organizations like Zona? Yeah, um, two things. Um, for donors and policymakers, I think really uh, focus on the enabling environment um, for startups. And there are so many things uh, that need to be done, like things like Startup Acts, which I know is, is kind of in motion. For, it's been in motion for a long time in South Africa, but tax regimes, um, ease of setting up company, ease of moving money in and out removal of exchange controls, like all these things like make doing business in emerging markets in places like Africa so hard. And like you, you can't focus on your customers and business. You have to you get like a PhD in like transfer pricing and like multi-country tax policy. And because to get money like you like that stuff's really important. Um, and uh, it, it's a sad reality, like uh, in many countries, like investors don't want to invest directly into those locations. They want to put their money into uh you know, a top co, which is in like the US or UK or Ireland or Netherlands or Mauritius or somewhere. And I think this is because the enabling environment is, is not 
always beneficial and, and um, making also like a fair playing field for startups um, to you know compete with the big big players like the telcos that have a lot more market power. Um, there were definitely times where um, we were struggling to get uh, partnerships um, and having to compete for tenders that the telcos didn't, um, even though we were we were small and they were big. Um, so for policymakers and, and um, donors, I think there's a, a big role there. And then for like other investors, just uh, taking more risk is is the general advice I would give because um, like we're like it, it's a risky <laughs> it's a risky environment. Um, entrepreneurship is risky. Um, but a lot of the times I, I heard this, I was rejected by an investor last week who told me that our bar for investing in Africa is just much higher than it is for anywhere else, um, like in the US or Europe or anywhere else in the world. And I could put myself in their shoes and I completely get it. And, and, and the bar in terms of like traction. And I'm like, yeah, like it's a rational thing um, where it's like you, you know, you want to see more traction and more revenue and, and uh, more validation. Um, but what it means is all of these like really good businesses and purpose-driven companies that are starting have to get a lot farther with a lot less. And that's hard, right? And it just, uh, people burn out. And and I think we need like more more money, um, especially at seed stage funding. Um, it's getting better like for the angel investing and it's like kind of easier now to like get started um, than it was when, when we started Zona. But like, um, it's really, really hard once you get going to access the capital you need to start scaling. Um, because all of these investors are looking for like the one winner that's going to take over the whole ecosystem when we need like thousands of winners, right? So um, I, I would say like that would be my advice to um, to like other investors coming into the space. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I do I do hear from a lot of entrepreneurs in Africa that the biggest barrier is cash, that entry point, you know, that initial seed funding just to get off the ground. Uh, and then the funding that comes after that, obviously. Mike, is there someone in the industry who has inspired or guided you that you want to give a shout out to on this podcast? Yeah, so many people. Um, <laughs> Maybe one or two. <laughs> but I, yeah, I'll, I'll pick um, uh, Kat Lego, um, Mafai, and uh, Carl Wazen, um, uh, two of the, the co-founders from Yoko that I, I've gotten to know. Um, Kat Lego gave me a wonderful endorsement for my book. So, so thank you. And uh, I, I was watching their journey from when they were just just getting started and they were visiting the Zona office and like um, having conversations about being customer centric and culture and 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 seeing how those guys uh, and, and the Yoko team um, survived the lockdown during COVID in South Africa and had a business that nearly collapsed and then took off and then ended up raising like a groundbreaking $83 million investment round recently. Um, and, and I think they're building the the business in the right way and they're having tons of impact and they're just genuinely like really good human beings. And I'm, I'm like always inspired to connect with them. That's awesome. In turn on the reading front, is there one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in this industry? <laughs> it's, it's a great question. I, I, I was joking before this uh, uh, with you, Rowena, I, I, like, I wish I had more time to read and I, I don't, but um, <laughs> you seem like I, a busy I guy. When it, yeah. When I, when I do, I'm probably, um, probably going to Twitter more, more than I, more than I should, um, at Don't times. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I would just maybe give a shout out to, um, uh, Elizabeth Yin, um, who's, who's also, um, an investor in boost and, uh, and, uh, did a cover quote for my international version of, of failing to win. Um, and, uh, she's, she started a hustle fund she's out in Silicon Valley, but, um, to, to, what does she say? Like to, to um, invest like ridiculously early, like in founders, like before anybody else backs them. So like idea stage. And um, I really think she's onto something and she, she has like amazing tweets 
um, that add a lot of value um, and democratize learnings around like fundraising and marketing and customer acquisition. And um, so I would follow you, uh, encourage everybody to follow her. Um, and follow follow me too at Mike P Quinn, but um, I, I don't say anything nearly as insightful as Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the idea of it. Also, yeah, I love the idea of it also because investors are like herd animals, and so they tend to all invest in the same things once it's got traction, once everyone else is looking at it. Um, whereas it really takes courage to invest earlier on in the lifestyle of a of a new company. Last question, Mike. Just for fun, is there a book, a blog, or a podcast that you enjoy in your personal time? Because I'm sure you have lots of personal time. Yeah, um, I, have, I have kids, so uh, um, <laughs> well, maybe they <laughs> enjoy. Personal... You could do that too. Yeah, maybe they enjoy uh, anything by Roald Dahl right now is, um, is great. Excellent choice. Um, yeah, I would recommend. So we talked about Shoe Dog earlier, which was amazing. Another book I would I would highly recommend is Educated by Tara Westover. Um, it's an incredible story uh, of uh, uh, a young woman who grew up in a, um, in quite a. a I don't know what to like how to call it like extreme isolated family in uh, um, I think Idaho in the U.S. and uh, di- didn't get an education because um, wasn't allowed to go to school wasn't allowed to go to a doctor and then just her experience of kind of like growing up and I, I know it's won tons of awards but um, it's something that I read uh, about a year ago and it was it was a very much an inspiration for me writing the book I, I was just thinking about it but I read this story and I was like you know, it was incredible. And I like, um, I'm like, I want to actually just start writing more. Nice. That's awesome. So I think people, people would love it. Everybody that reads, it's like, wow, what a book. <laughs> uh, it's been on my to read list for a while, but I think you just bumped it to the top. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. It was lovely speaking with you. I have so many more questions about your book and your life, but unfortunately we're running out of time. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Rowena. Mike left Zona in 2019. Not too long after, a deal fell through, which would have provided $40 million in financing to carry Zona forward. Now, looking at Mike's story, it's tempting to shake your head and wonder, how did Mike and his co-founders ever imagine that they could take on the billion-dollar phone companies? But fast forward two years. This year, Wave, a company out of Senegal, has closed $200 million to do something very similar to what Zona was doing. Just like Zona, their competitive advantage is better price, better usability, and a powerful agent network. If a few things had played out just a little bit differently, that could have been Zona. If you want to learn more about Mike's story, the best way to do so is to read his book. Now, I'm a mother of two young kids. I basically don't read anymore, but I read his book, cover to cover. It's fascinating. It's called Failing to Win, and you can get it on Amazon Kindle, anywhere in the world. Or if you're fortunate enough to live in South Africa like me, it's also available in Take A Lot and in any bookstore here. We'll see you in two weeks for the next episode of Aid Evolved. <laughs>